anything can happen in the next hour. This is DMS, and I am Nad. With me, as always, is the good Sir Hemingford Gray. How you doing, my bud? Stand by for action. And with us yet again, becoming a regular co-host, is Shire Hobbit. Hey, man. Putting a nuclear reactor into a commercial jetliner is a good idea. <laughs> you know, everyone has been ranting and raving in my head about you because we don't get a lot of feedback on the show, but I'm always happy to have you on. I like to imagine the feedback, too, would say that they like having me on as well. We have such amazing imaginary fans who give us so much imaginary support. Well, we have had feedback on uh, Grub and Soil. It's like it said, uh, we love we love Hemi and Kaber and, and Hobbit's on there as well. <laughs> Hobbit is also there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he's also here. And today we're going to be talking with him about the, what would you call it, an animation genre? The, the film the genre. I think the be- um, I think the best thing to do is probably start define terms. Super Mario Nation. No, it's not a new Switch game. <laughs> <laughs> Super, not Super Mario Nation, and not Super Marination either. But Super Mario Nation, like marionettes, in the style that inspired the movie Team America: World Police, which most of our listeners are probably familiar with. And we're gonna be talking about shows in that genre from the sixties and seventies. I don't think we go later than the 70s. Maybe we traipse a little bit into the I early think 80s. Terry Hawks, is, Terry Hawks is 80s, I think. Yeah. Judging by the theme tune, it is. Now, we have an edgy audience of anarcho-vegans who might be wondering why we're going to be talking about puppets for babies. It's because <laughs> old stuff can be cool sometimes. All right? And this is all old stuff whose existence I only vaguely knew about while the other guys here kind of know it quite fondly is that correct yeah yeah this is absolutely uh, the food of childhood memories stingray thunderbirds captain scarlet joe 90s all like saturday morning tv shows right was this stuff that was on say the bbc or how how did this stuff get broadcast itv yeah yeah no that's the thing it, it was itv but in the 1990s uh, they put thunderbirds in full color on the bbc and that was my first exposure to Jerry Anderson's work. Okay, and these are reruns, yeah, of the show. Yeah. So, so, for, that... so for me, it was when I was a kid in the eighties, what having uh, Stingray and uh, Captain Scarlet reruns. Cool. Yeah. I if that was ever on TV when I was a kid, I just, I just never happened upon it. And as far as I understand, they wanted to get these shows into into like a broader market, but were never really super successful. And in fact, trying to do that caused them to flounder a bit and harm what they were trying to do with the medium. Thunderbirds had a big budget movie, though, didn't it? Do you remember the Thunderbirds Argo movie? I I, I don't, uh, although I did look into... Well, we'll talk about that in a bit when we talk about Thunderbirds. (laughs) We're going to be talking about tons of shows today, guys. So strap yourselves in, and we're going to go through them chronologically so we're going to start with some of the earlier shows in the genre and go into you know take you through the decades into some of the more recent stuff and it's all pretty fascinating the the culture the history behind it but the guy behind all the work we'll be discussing is someone named jerry anderson who's kind of called the british walt disney i don't know if he was as much of an anti-semite 
as Mr. Disney. I don't think he was an anti-Semite at all because he was born, born Gerald Alexander Abrahams. Huh. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. So he, he sweetified his name. Yeah. I, I wonder I wonder what's going on there. Well, he's dead anyway, so that that's that. But his estate actually has a hand in putting some of his stuff online for free. So they have a YouTube channel and an archive.org account, which we'll try and put in the show notes. But you can look up Jerry Anderson. It's spelled like Jerry, but with a G. So it's weird. Yes. There you go. That's right. It is a shortening of Gerald for now that I think about it. But And I was able to watch everything we're going to talk about on streaming sites, mostly YouTube, a few elsewhere. But it's easy to get a hold of because this is such... It's such like niche like stuff that's mostly been kind of replaced by CG. Although I don't think CG actually really like replaces this wholesale. Like I'm not going to say that, yeah, CG does everything that, that this genre does and better. It's really a fascinating genre that has its own kind of visual flair to it that I'm sure you could probably recreate in CG perfectly if you tried. But CG works don't really try to do that, right? They don't really try to emulate this. Have you seen that Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet but have both had um, CG makeovers? Yeah, don't waste your time. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't. That's really more of a cash-in. It's a cash-in yeah. on the brand. It's not an attempt to kind of recapture that. And this is a product of its time. Because at one point, the Super Mario Nation was the most advanced nation in the world. And I, I, I think it was le- the leading edge in, in any kind of animated or non-live action production, even though technically this is puppetry. In a way, it is live action. It does combine elements of cell animation for certain scenes. It combines elements of uh, real life people for certain scenes. The hands, particularly any kind of handwork is the a lot of hands, the hand stuff. Yeah. And I, I actually really liked the way that it's done in, in Anderson's works where the actors are kind of imitating the movement of puppets, except not in like a hokey way, like where, where it's obvious, right? That they're, they're not puppets. They do a good job of sort of not falling into the uncanny Valley, not moving totally in a way that puppets can't, but not moving exactly like them in sort of a rigid fashion. So they get the articulation of a real hand while not taking you out of the scene. And it's not done in an ironic way, like in SpongeBob or something like that. I think it's kind of because the sci-fi is treated very, very seriously, isn't it? Yeah, these shows have sort of a, a quiet, sort of adult quality that you might see in something like a Netflix show today. I don't think you'd see it, some of the stuff you'd see in Netflix shows today. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's a great thing about this is you can kind of watch this and enjoy it without sort of bracing yourself for, you know, all the all the crud that they put in a modern day show. It doesn't have the pitfalls of the 21st century entertainment. It's much more of its time. And I think that there's something good about that. And also, I like the vision of the future it shows as well. Exactly. It's very optimistic. It's very optimistic. It, it doesn't really take into account what 
the kind of social norms that were being established in the 60s and 70s, what effect they would have on future generations. There was nothing but optimism here. It's kind of, kind of like Star Trek in a sense, where everyone thought that we would have like habitats on the moon and deep in, in the ocean, faster than light travel, free shirts for everyone. This kind of optimism, hope for technology, hope for culture. And, and a good, healthy dose of xenophobia, I think, make a lot of this media very ingestible, even as an adult, with the understanding, with the understanding that it was still intended for children of the time, which is actually kind of a further discredit to Netflix, because, I mean, the stories and the themes are, are really on par with their kind of tacitly adult entertainment, right? Well, on Netflix, this is, this is a thing... This is a thing that seems to be lost, doesn't it? What happened was people used to make content for children, but it dealt with it in such an adult way that adults could watch it as well and not be kind of talked down to. Whereas now the idea of dual entertainment for children and adults is putting dirty jokes in that that kids won't get. Yeah, the core of it is that you're not talking down to the children. You're sort of presenting things in a way that they can ingest and they can understand. Well, especially not when we get to Joe 90. When, when I was we... just going to say that I, I want to talk about how that's... It is very adult. They just assume, hey, do all this stuff and it won't lead to emotional trauma. There's there's nothing <laughs> like that. It's just like, hey, you're now a, a top uh, a top pilot and uh, you can outrun various uh, Russian interceptors. But I'm, get, I'm getting ahead. I'm getting ahead. I'm sorry. I think it's time for us to talk about the shows. So let's get right yeah. into it with Supercar. Supercar! Supercar! With beauty and grace, as swift as can be. Watch it flying through the air. It travels in space or under the sea. And it can journey anywhere. Supercar! Supercar. It travels on land or roams the skies through the heavens' stormy rage. It's Mercury Man, and everyone cries. It's the marvel of the age. Supercar. 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 So this was the first Super Mario show that Jerry Anderson worked on, right? What was he doing before this? He did, I think, the TV series directly before this is For Something Falls, For What Falls or something, which was a Western show. Did that predate Supercar? I thought Supercar was the first. Yeah, basically, the reason we're starting with Supercar is, is, is Supercar was the first one that Jerry made with his own production company. He was working in children's TV long before this. He'd done about three or four series at least. Predecessor to this? Was that also a Super Mario show? No, because I, th- I think the, de- the demarcation point is Supercar with the Super Mario oh, show. Oh, gotcha, because gotcha, then gotcha. It's, because then it's Jer- this is 100% Jerry's property. Now, the way that Super Mario Nation is kind of defined, it, and, and it's sort of vague, but I, I, I think the way that Jerry Anderson defined it was the use of electronics in the puppets especially to do automatic lip syncing, which I didn't know about. I think that I didn't expect them to have kind of 
hardware that sophisticated in the 60s. So the lips on the puppets are not hand operated. They're operated by a machine that I guess is listening to waveforms of the pre-recorded dialogue and then moving the... Oh, I was going to say it's quite innovative, but I'd, I'd love to explain how it can be done simply even with 19, well, 1920s technology, let alone 1960s technology when they did that. Really? According to Wikipedia, it comes from sort of some sort of um, Czech version of puppetry. The Czech oh. style of marionette puppetry. I, I can't say that, but as for the actual lip syncing, what they would do is they'd have the uh, dialogue put into the puppet, and there's a solenoid, which is a type of linear motor, which it, like a piston, it goes either in or out. And then based on the waveform, so if the waveform's quite loud, like someone shouting, it'll make the piston go all the way and waggle. And if they're just talking softly, it'll move the lips just a little bit. So it, it's really... it's. The, the actuation force of the solenoid is much like the actuation force you'd have on the voice call and the speaker. So the speaker flaps around more when there's loud noises. Oh, okay. Very interesting. I'm so used to microchips being able to kind of do everything by magic, that this very mechanical thing, you know, that I'm more of the, the power steering generation. You know, <laughs> so so this kind of stuff is absolutely fascinating. But as for supercar, it does what it says in the tin. It's a car that can go anywhere, including space. So very pretty pretty basic plot. And but for a show called Supercar, I think that it's surprisingly well written and more importantly well shot. And I understand how Jerry Anderson was able to spawn so many additional shows from it. And I actually ended up wanting to see what episode two was like. I wasn't expecting that I would I would feel that way. I've never seen episode two, only the pilot. Yeah, that I mean, that's what I watched from most of the shows that we're talking about today. I just watched the first episode, get a feel for them, and sort of made my judgments from there. I found that, you know, if I did skim through future episodes, they were pretty representative. Most of these shows only lasted one uh, season or series, as they might be called in their homelands. Most of them lasted uh, probably about two two years because I watched a documentary and Jerry was saying like every two years, Lou Grade would come to me and, he, uh, and he'd say, you know, it's about that time we, we need to be looking for another another series. Right. I think that maybe they would do a series and then they would take a year off or to uh, do some pre-production and then put out a new one. Maybe rerun it because this was this was the before time, mm. wasn't it? When when you went when with appointment television where you were you were either in to watch it or you missed it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. So I, I have to say that most of Jerry Anderson's shows are essentially a remake of Supercar. So the basic <laughs> format is this. You have kind of a do-gooder team, and the the way that this team is organized can absolutely change up. In the case of Supercar, it's like a hand two totally autistic scientists, and I love the way <laughs> that they they play upon their autism. I love how scientists were just known, like smart people were just known to be kind of autistic, and this was just something that was. You know, okay, yeah, these these smart people are kind of weird and 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 introverted, and that's fine. You know, it didn't have to be this whole like geek culture thing. I can tell you what that you you can see the improvement and refinement in Jerry Anderson's puppet. Or was no, it was Sylvie Anderson that created the puppets. 
Uh, Sylvia did she? She didn't that... come, in to come in until later. She was she was okay. a secretary who then uh, went on to marry Jerry. I think. Well, she she time. actually did do a voice in this show, so I'm not sure. Oh, quite, if, maybe that she was in from. She was pros- possibly in from the start then. Possibly, she did do the voice of a boy, just like. Now, this reminds me a lot of Speed Racer, and I actually believe now that Speed Racer took some inspiration from this show because Speed Racer's car looks very similar to the supercar, which is kind of pointy in front. Also, the the supercar team has a pet monkey named Mitch, which, funny story, I initially thought they were saying Nietzsche, like Nietzsche, which (laughs) I think would have been a way funnier name for a monkey. (laughs) <laughs> and so I do think that the, the Speed Racer ensemble is a little bit inspired by Supercar. But the format here is that a, a team of do-gooders have vehicles that they use to just do good. It's not even always like sometimes they're fighting against like a consistent bad guy who's the bad guy through the whole show. And sometimes they're just going up against different different problems every di- every episode normally it's the same group of bad guys either like a big group of like an organization or a specific small group like i don't know if you've seen power rangers or something you know that you know what i mean there's like one bad guy who's who's doing all this lame shit every week and it just sounds one of them has uh, eyes which light up and occasionally with hilarious consequences <laughs> that's a uh, thunderbird isn't it oh a little information for you, Nat. I, I don't know whether you know, but there's a new New York station called WPIX, which actually started showing Supercar on Saturday, the 6th of January, 1962, at 6.30 p.m. And it's also been sold into 140 U.S. markets. So it should have been. Wow. So it was actually sold quite a bit. Aside from it being black and white, because uh, this was the early 60s, and you know, also the audio suffers a little bit so some of the comedic timing doesn't quite get through especially with the autistic scientists who are really the uh, primary source of your comedic relief i guess mitch the monkey is is somewhat there as well but a lot of the comedic dialogue of course does not come from him it comes from the scientists and that banter suffers a bit Mitch the monkey was is like a thing that was adopted by many many like Hanna Barbera cartoons, wasn't it? Like the weird alien slash uh, monster slash puppy sidekick. Absolutely, that absolutely. Talks gobbledygook. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that is repeated a little bit in subsequent shows, but but only for for a time. So we'll we'll mention that in as we talk about the next couple shows. But for for Supercar, I found it. I found it very watchable. You mentioned that the the puppets are not very good looking. Now, yeah, there is a progression. I mean, there is a huge progression in the shows we're talking about over the decades. Technical progression. Obviously, you know, they had more money going forward, too. And I'm sure that helps a lot. But you can also see the development of the craft. For supercar, all all the knobs and switches and stuff like that, they they were toothpaste lids and things like that. that. That makes sense. In this case, the old-timey visual quality helps Supercar. The only stuff that I really noticed was that sometimes on the car itself, I could see the strings. And this is in, like, the intro of the show. So that's not so great to have those strings visible there. But the motion was not stilted, like you see in so many ironic takes 
on marionettes. The motion's very smooth. They're really shooting for realism. Realism is the defining factor in in Jerry Anderson's style. You mean like the is it um is it is it Edward the film director that does like the the is it Plan Nine from Outer Space that film? That's the, right. The one, yeah. the one with the rocket that that's like the the bottom end of this this genre, isn't it? Of effects. Right. I mean, you've. I think our listeners, if they're not familiar with this, they've probably seen renditions of this kind of puppetry done either for comedic effect or done super crappy in a lot of older stuff. Like, no, everything is well done, even when you can kind of see the flaws in it. It's it takes itself seriously and it it really does try to 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 entertain. And I was entertained by this. I didn't expect to be entertained by something called supercar. I think that's how it gets you engrossed because it's everybody that does this is taking it seriously, aren't they? Yeah. Although the plot of the first episode is not that interesting, even the way that so they don't start off with their team complete at first. It's just the handsome test pilot and the goofy scientists, and then they kind of take on the burden of uh, a child and a monkey i don't know i think the kid's dad <laughs> died or something i'm not sure what happened there but uh, it's kind of it's kind of sad i don't know what happened to the adult that that was care- that seemed to be caring for the child if they adopt him because he died i they gloss over that so that could actually be really dark there's <laughs> numerous uh, features and facts in various jerry anson uh, shows which should annoy me and sometimes they do but it's just the way it's sort of carried on and it's presented in total, it just it's better than the sum of its parts in so many ways. Exactly. It's better than the sum of its parts. And the pacing, for me, made or bragged each of these, uh, each of these shows. <laughs> and <laughs> the pacing in this was spot on, even if the plot, at least the first episode, was like, eh, you know, that's like weird origin story it's not very interesting i think the the kid and and his monkey and i guess his dad they they have a a plane crash in the ocean and no one can find them and the supercar team hears about it on the radio and they decide to take their currently experimental craft out to save them at the behest of our main character the pilot that's the episode it goes on for half an hour they eventually do it so basically they have salvage rights on the child and the monkey then (laughs) (laughs) It was a more innocent time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, children are meant to be owned. And that's it. That's it. That's the phrase, right? So most of the entertainment's coming from the craft here, from the the puppetry, the sets, the props, and and some of the dialogue, and not really the story. And uh, that brings us uh, to the successor to Supercar, Fireball XL5. Like Again, show. this is another black and white TV show. Have you seen there's a colorized episode, Hobbit? Someone colorized it. Oh, really? What is it? On YouTube. Oh, that's it's a real shame because I mean, they were done in film, and, and I take it that foot well, there's black and white film then, so it wouldn't have been color. That's a real shame, but I'll have to check it out. Now, this is one of the things when I, I was I didn't want to jump ahead, but when I was saying that there's some glaring inconsistencies or there's some logical choices where you go, why did they do that? And in this case, the control tower for the fireball station, rather than having the radar at the top rotate, the entire tower rotates. I saw that and I was thinking maybe everyone at work feels a bit sick all day. (laughs) (laughs) 
Maybe they just thought, hey, the future of restaurants is to have like a rotating platform at the top of the tower. So, of course, the the future of all buildings is they rotate. <laughs> yeah, in Fireball XL5, the acting, the puppet designs, and the effects were all kind of, it struck me as they were kind of reaching beyond their grasp. And it seemed more like a learning experience for Anderson's team than anything else. But let's talk about what this this one's about. So I think it could essentially be boiled down to the space police fight Chicoms, right? <laughs> and that another sentient mobile. You were talking about the faithful robot that gets very angry and steam comes out of its sockets. Oh, is that is that what what happens when he gets angry? Yeah, yeah. Because I saw the alien slash monkey thing was winding him up. Well, he's not particularly fast, so it's easy to wind him up and uh, you give him, like, too many orders in a certain time and just steam starts coming out. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the aliens in this talk like Chinese caricatures. They look vaguely like Chinese caricatures. So I think it's pretty clear what the creators were going for. We mentioned the robot buddy that the space team has but we also have a kind of alien buddy who who is our mitch in this show and i i felt like my enjoyment of this was kind of hampered by the terrible image quality which is a problem in a highly visual medium like this so and, and as we mentioned the effects and whatnot are already kind of like reaching beyond their grasp so this kind of compounded the the issue for me now you said that supercar was ugly like the design of the of well, the doll mitch mercury mike mercury in it he reminds me of the punch from the punch and judy puppet show i'm not sure if uh, the viewers are familiar with it but it's this i believe it was originally an italian puppet show but it got popular in england and it's got prominent right. features like prominent chin and cheekbones, and uh, it's a caricature of a human being. Yeah, which... caricature is the operative word there. People are familiar with this style, especially from Team America, which aims to emulate it. These puppets aren't designed weird because they don't know what a human face looks like. They're very much caricatures. They're supposed to be... It's not only derived from actual stage marionette performances, which are extremely stylized, but it is also competing with the animated shows of the time, which, of course, are caricaturish. Yeah, you start to see it in Fireball XL5. The, the women are pretty and uh, the men are, are handsome and it gets better. And, of course, the scientists in it is just this sort of typical bespectacled boffin with the usual characteristic traits. I think one of the things you mentioned earlier is just about how this show can appeal to both adults and children. That's true of a lot of Jerry Anderson's productions. It's because they had this, they had this attention to detail them. Yeah, the story was good and the action was interesting. This, in the very first Thunderbirds, where they're having to rescue the, the plane whose landing gear won't, won't operate, so they're having to synchronize. It is one of the very sort of nail-biting, intense moment. But the other, I think one of the things I really appreciate about it is the attention to detail. And as such, I've become to enjoy the hand scenes more and more because they are people with rubber gloves doing it. But at the same time, the people with rubber gloves pretending they are one of those marionettes in the super marionation world. Right. 
So they're wearing rubber gloves. Okay. I was wondering how exactly they got their hands to look so smooth without yeah. looking totally unnatural. It was a very, very subtle effect. And I knew there was something going on there, but I couldn't put my finger on it. That's very interesting. And you don't even really notice they're wearing gloves at all. At least I didn't. But I, I did find the puppets in Fireball XL5 to be uglier than than those in uh, Supercar. It's not so much the designs, it's really more the way they're put together. The The eyebrows are kind of sloppy. Things just felt a little bit sloppy in this show, the way that they, they felt tighter in Supercar. And I think it's because Jerry Anderson wanted to go bigger and better after his recent success, and it just wasn't quite there yet. But the plot was better in Fireball than it was in Supercar. I got to give them that. The plot in the, the first episode was kind of intriguing. It's just, to me, the the acting and the effects, that was the issue. One of the things you find in XL5, which I think becomes prominent in his later shows, is recycling of uh, the same content over and over again. I mean, in Thunderbirds, famously, it's when they all scramble to go into their respective vehicles, and there's all the various fans and shoots and animations, and uh, fun fact about this, which I'm sure Hemi will pick up on, is that they're not particularly good when walking, so they try to minimise scenes where they're walking, and so therefore when they're going to their various uh, vehicles, they'll be sliding in or running down, going up at an elevator, and they just kind of, especially in this case of Stingray, they just slide into the chairs from two shoots. And this is very reminiscent of Japanese shows as well, where you'll have a robot transformation sequence, a magical girl transformation sequence, etc. Where since the plot of each episode follows a particular formula, we have an opportunity to fill up time with the reused film sequence. And of course, the, the intro and outro factors into that as well. You just kind of got to burn time to save money. Well, That's not to say everything feels really canned and repeated, but... Well, no, far from it. I was going to say it's been burned in my mind, the Fireball XL5 launch sequence, where it's got those those rockets, which definitely aren't firework props, and as it launches it off of the ramp, there's uh, extra rockets light up, and uh, it's all very dramatic. And I, I can even remember the music. It's been years since I've seen Fireball XL5, but you don't forget something like yeah, I think you like the music in these shows quite a lot. I, I found them to be, you know, perfectly nice. A few a few tracks actually stood out to me across these shows. Definitely appropriate for the atmosphere and the vibe. There were moments of being a little bit dated, a little bit of their time, especially if they were heavy with vocals. Supercar, I mean, it's very much like Flipper. If you remember Flipper, it's sort of like Lassie, but with a dolphin. And, you know, it goes like they call him Flipper, Flipper, faster than lightning. And it's just very hokey. Nothing wrong yeah. with that, but it is sort of a feels more of its time than other aspects. You do get that a lot with uh, Supercar. It's very much like this is a car. It goes on land. It goes in the air and it goes in the sea. And uh, Supercar, Supercar. It's, yeah. Now, I think later on when they did stuff like Stingray, it's got a very, I mean, that that just, that's one of those things on uh, early in the Saturday morning when you're listening to the theme to Stingray or uh, to Thunderbirds, it, it, it pumps you up for the show. At least it did for me. I think, yeah, I think that was the point. When I think back to 
things that I watched as a kid or just things that I knew of as a kid, like uh, the Transformers theme song or the Power Rangers theme song. These things uh, are meant to get you super hyped. <laughs> and and as a kid, they, they totally do that. Yeah, and the other thing I've got to say about this is it, the, the music was good. I mean, overall, the, everyone that was involved in, in these productions, they were competent people, and it really shines through. I mean, that's why there's little details like we need hands, but if we just use people's hands, then it will be too jarring because, you know, it won't look like smooth puppets. Oh, let's make them wear rubber gloves so they look a bit like the puppets. And let's get the hand models to act a bit like a marionette. Exactly, exactly. So let's let's move on into the color age of the Super Mario Nation and talk about Stingray. Stand by for action. We are about to launch Stingray. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Yeah, we can go with Stingray. Yeah, this is, I think it was the first of the color Super Mario Nation shows, and it's underwater. So we we had Supercar, which is everything. It can go into space and go underwater. It can fly in the uh, sky. It can drive on ground. It can do anything. Then we went out into space exclusively. We had, you know, spaceships and rockets and all of that. And now we're underwater. So it's another sci-fi show almost all of these are, are i think they're all sci-fi shows they're not there are no like fantasy medieval stuff i think it's mostly because of the the nature of the models that you're you're portraying on on screen you don't want them to be organic you want them to be mechanical things because that's that looks most realistic that's most believable a card model driving around a plane model in the sky or, or a rocket ship with pyrotechnic effects all of these things are most believable in the marionette puppetry setting and so this takes place in the 2020s again this is an example of the 1960s optimism during the space age when people thought we would have all of this amazing technology or something close to it on some level accessible to us. Now, the Stingray itself is a, a super high-tech submarine, and it's used by our super team here, which is an underwater reconnaissance unit who claims, in the episode that I watched, they claim that they're not fighters, they're just they're underwater investigators. But even so, they appear to have enough firepower to destroy the world. 
As one does. As one does, right? They have this whole base that when they go into battle mode, the whole thing sinks into the ground and becomes a bunker. Like this whole little city sinks into the ground. It actually reminded me of Evangelion. To me, it feels like an evolution of Fireball XL5 because there you have the air traffic control, space traffic control tower, which the entire thing rotates on. And how does the entrance and exits work on something that's constantly rotating? Never mind. But in this <laughs> one, it's just like, hey, look, here's the apartment complexes, here's the headquarters. It's like, yep, everything's in a sink now on these massive hydraulic lifts so that the, just the top surface is all, it's all just uh, smooth and plain because, cause, hey, we can do this stuff. We're, we're the best. We're WASP. <laughs> yeah, and, and so their whole city can go underground and like nuclear missiles can emerge ready to ready to strike oh the the hydronic missiles hydronic missiles yes of course whatever that means right on those cool terms you just gotta get the program <laughs> one day they investigate a some kind of shipwreck or or some kind of attack on a submarine and they accidentally discover that fishmen and hot babes live underwater and their life aquatic is never the same again or I don't know. Maybe it goes back to normal. I only watched the first episode, but I get the vibe that it's never the same again. First thing off the bat is that it realizes the the vision they were going for way better than Fireball XL5 because the effects are actually great and I really legitimately enjoyed them. Even though some of it is kind of hilarious because it almost hits that ironic point of like obviously being in a fish tank mm. where, you know, the, the aquatic life that they're swimming around is like supposed to be, I don't know, whales and sharks and stuff, but it's like literally just goldfish you can buy yes. at the pet store. Yeah, it is goldfish. And it's a fun fact. I mean, the, the thing is, they used a lot of miniature models to do these things. And if you show, say, like a, a, a miniature which is three foot across splashing into water you'll see that you'll get a few drops of water move around very quickly and that's it. So for those scenes, they would film them in 72 or 120 frames a second and then have it slowed down to 24 frames a second. And what that would produce is slower moving droplets, which is what you'd see with something that's not three foot across. So it'd give the illusion that what's going into the water is much greater. And a lot of, I'd say, pioneering work was done into special effects thanks to Super Mario Nation and because of their heavy use on miniatures. Absolutely. I, I could totally, totally see DNA of of these shows in so much stuff that I saw later. I mean, I had to check the dates on some of these shows because I was like, wait a minute, how did that exist before Star Wars or or whatever, right? And yeah, I think that a lot of the people who worked on these shows went on to work on stuff like Star Wars. And a lot of the techniques that came out of these shows were used later on in the film industry and are actually even used today to some extent. Although I couldn't do a a blow-by-blow list of of what's still used. I'm just not that kind of uh, special effects uh, savant. But but from what I've read, this was very, very influential. We're, we're not Steve Norrington making Death Machine. Unfortunately, we're just amateurs who, who enjoy these, these things for what they are. But there's no... I mean, the only other way I can think of replicating the look of water moving slowly 
is to use oil, but then you have the problem with oil being more viscous than water. It doesn't do it. But I'm sort of focusing too much on just one particular avenue there. But right, right. A lot of the stuff in it, they it is cheesy, and they they've they've sort of worked trying to make it as realistic as possible. And I gotta say, to this day, the work with puppets it has aged much better than early or even present day CGI stuff. There's just something to be done with real actual items, with real lighting and shadows and real water, which CGI can't do. Right. CG has its own look. This has its own look. Could you replicate this look in CG? Absolutely. But nobody's really trying to do that. So CG does not eclipse this in every way. It's it's actually capable of much more than Super Mario Nation, granted, but it isn't this. You know, it's still different. And that's why this has value still. I think I think CG's also perceived these days as being lazy, isn't it? People would rather see a practical effect, wouldn't they? Well, I was really impressed by some of the stuff they were able to accomplish, especially with the pyrotechnics and whatnot. Even in Supercar, they had streams of flame coming out of some pipes. And this, to me, was like, wow, okay, this is really, really good. Some things are obviously far less convincing than if you were to do them with CG, but other things were like, wow, I can't believe someone did this by hand. And that's where a lot of it comes from. You need to go in with an appreciation for craft. Have we spoken about the size of the puppets yet as well? No, we haven't mentioned. Uh, this comes in, in in one of the later TV shows we're going to talk about. Yeah, we kind of touched puppets... upon it when, when Hobbit was talking about the the water effects. They were using, what were they, three-foot models, right? They're, they're, they're a third human size of their third scale. Oh, yeah, but I'm talking about the miniatures for the vehicles. They wouldn't have yeah, been the, scale, I've, I've seen it. I've seen articles about this before. The other thing about, the thing about Stingrays, I don't think they actually use a lot of water in it, ironically enough, do they? No, it's, it's kind of just like they've got like a, a glass screen in front of their puppets with goldfish and other things <laughs> floating around it. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think how they get around it, I think, like you say, I think they use it. It's a sheet of glass with the, pup- with the puppeteering done in front, isn't it? Yeah, the effects in this are fascinating, particularly because it is underwater. And I think maybe that's kind of what Jerry Anderson was going for. He's like, well, Mm. how can we up the ante from Fireball XL5? Well, what if we do all this complex water stuff? This is something that you can't really do the same way in uh, cell animation, right? Involving actual water. I wonder whether maybe like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was like the big movie that year or something like that. Because it seems, it seems weird that uh, Underwater would be, would be picked, doesn't it? I, I think it is more of a craft thing. You know, the, the more that we talk about this and the more that I would watch these shows, I feel like Jerry Anderson was more interested in the craft of the Super Marionation technique than he was in kind of other aspects of the show. Well, the division of labor worked out to be is like many of the voice actors had never met Jerry because Jerry was on set doing all the practical stuff and then Sylvia ended up doing all of the voice stuff. I see, I see. I have to say it was very successful in in this show. One thing I noticed is that all the characters are adults. I enjoyed the banter between them. And there's even a romance subplot that appears to be extremely prominent in the overarching plot of the show. There's a little triangle, isn't there? There's Troy Tempest, Marina, and uh, Atlanta that works in the in the thing, isn't there? Right, yeah. yeah. There's a love triangle. You don't 
really see that in kids entertainment or even adult entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you think about like Marvel shows or something, that doesn't really happen too much, right? Yeah, it's usually just straight up unrequited love, isn't it? It's not often you get like a love triangle. Right. Now, there is one scene in the first episode that is very weird it drags on and on and on and the the purpose is to build tension and on one hand it really did build tension on the other hand the 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 tension was generated by wondering if a fish in a a fishbowl would keep looking out of the bowl or turn around which is an insane concept (laughs) this goes on for like three minutes if the fish keeps looking at the guy he lives if he if the fish turns around at any point and they worship this fish by the way they he's obviously just a stupid fish but they worship him like a god so this is a very insane scene that's blasphemy against that fish <laughs> what can we do with puppets right i think some of the the the, the plots are written specifically like what can we do within budget right, it is an out there theory do, do you think uh, do you think maybe jerry anderson was a bit of a fan of hp Lovecraft, you think that's what the fish people were all about? <laughs> hey, maybe. I think, yeah, there there is like this sort of I think just sci-fi of the day has like what if there was a race of monster people? We are we're underwater, we can't do do aliens, so it'll have to be like the the, the creature from the Black Lagoon people, won't it? Yeah, they're like that. All of the uh, villains in this, they have like a similar theme. They they very similar to ones in Father XL five and they're quite similar to one in a later show we talk about called Terror Hawks, and they just—they're they, they, all grotesque. Well, also think about the time machine. What is that? H.G. Wells, right? In the future era, you have the like very fair, almost childlike race of people, and then you have the monstrous race—the dark, animalistic beast. The Eloy, the Eloy, and the Morlocks. Exactly. So this has a similar dichotomy where you have hot babes and fish people, and hot mute, you know, hot mute babes, the best kind. Hot, the best yeah, kind of babes. It, hell yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, literally the best of all worlds. And, <laughs> and, and and even though the outro song of Stingray has you know him longing that she could say something, it's like, come on, man. Grass is always greener <laughs> on the other side, man. Seaweed's always greener. But uh, that's got one of the best openings in like any kind of TV, isn't it? Anything can happen in the next half hour, and then the boom, 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 boom. Wait a second, boom, 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 boom. That's Captain Scarlet. <laughs> Stingrays. Yeah, but the the anything can happen in the next five minutes. That's the boom, 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 isn't it? Oh, okay, right. And it's the same guy that did all of the music for all of these shows. I guess that's what Oh, really? Are. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Well, that's a nice thing. It ties them all together. It gives them that... that I. It's almost like... I'd say there's a brand with Jerry Anderson's Super Marionette animation, Super Marion... Super Marionation? Yeah, Super Marionation. There we go. It's a brand, and it's consistent, I'd say, for, throughout all of the various shows. Yeah, absolutely. These all feel like different stories within an anthology rather than totally separate shows. So let's move on to the crown jewel of that anthology, Thunderbirds. Five, four, three, two, one. 
birds are go. Now, this is an airborne team of do-gooders. So they're specifically airborne, but they're still taking on Chicoms. But this time, they're secret <laughs> Chicom terrorists. <laughs> Was this the one you were telling me about, Hobbit? The one with the um, indicator bulbs for eyes? Yeah. Uh, the hood. It, you can finally tell us your story about the hood, Hobbit. Well, I want to say indicator bulbs, but it, it's the sort Hang on. They're definitely not amber. They They light up white. And they had to be very careful with it because the hood was the villain in this show, and they had to create multiple heads, spare heads for him. As uh, when they kept doing his effect, where his eyes would light up, it would melt the glass fiber and rubber creation, which is what their their skin is made of. So what did they they needed to get a new head every time they used that effect, or? Oh no, they they would try and just make it very intimate, just like sort of flashing his lights on only for like a couple of seconds at most. Okay, okay. It, so uh, Thunderbirds is probably one of the most influential pieces of media. I know the origin story for the Thunderbirds. Do you want to know it? Yeah. Oh, do tell. Uh, yeah. So so it's coming towards the end of Stingray's life on the shelf, and and Jerry Anderson knows he's he's going to be getting the call soon, where he's got to invent a new series. And there was a story about some some miners that got rescued. What they did was they sent a tube into the ground. The miners would get into the tube and get pulled up again, and that was what gave him the inspiration for Thunderbirds, the international rescue. Yes, and that is the name of the super team. In this show, they're called International Rescue. This is obviously the the largest influence on Team America. Team America World Police could almost be considered a, a parody of International Rescue. The unit is all male, and they're all sons of the unit's leader, except for their resident secret agent, who is an attractive lady. And I mean lady in the formal sense. She's sort of a like a duchess or something like that. She's Lady Penelope. Oh, did you know who exactly. voiced Lady Penelope? It was it was Sylvia Anderson. Right, right. Sylvia Anderson herself. And yeah. I, I believe that Star Wars was inspired by Thunderbirds, like very, very directly. Although I don't think this is ever said explicitly. What is said explicitly is that the visual style of the Star Wars Clone Wars TV show was inspired by Thunderbirds or directly taken from Thunderbirds. Oh, it actually, it actually was, was it? it or... Yes, it was. It would. They they said explicitly. I think it was George Lucas or someone else said that they they looked at Thunderbirds and they knew that for an animated version of Star Wars, they knew they needed really strong caricatures, and so they looked at the caricature style of this show. And and this show's caricature style is really the most iconic, I think, out of all these shows. The, just the shape of the faces, the shape of the lips, not exclusive to Thunderbirds. Stingray did this as well, a very similar sort of caricature style. But but definitely, you know, this is this is where it was realized in a way that that people found most uh, memorable. Also, Thunderbirds was 100 percent aimed for the American market. That's that's why you had a pretty much 
almost in like all, all the main leads are, are all americans aren't they also ingray started off black and white then it went to color but it had to go to color to be sold to the american market because the americans were weren't really interested weren't inter- interested in in uh, black and white at the time yeah the the financier of jerry anderson's company he was obsessed with getting into the american market that's a fellow called lou grade and and he used to be a director of the bbc grade huh you know a very different surname from what i would have expected but he, it, it may be it may be a different surname but it's the same people uh-huh well uh, he was so obsessed with the american market that even though thunderbirds was doing extraordinarily well he decided to cut the second season short at only six episodes and just make it a new a new show altogether so this is a very beloved show that was killed before its time simply because they wanted to expand profits. So it's kind of a sad thing that they treat these shows in such an industrial way, but I guess they had no idea how uh, the cultural impact. The lo- the longevity. That's one yeah. thing you never know, is it? Exactly. Okay, well, we've got to run a business, so we need to make strategic decisions to do that. It's not purely about the art, especially in a country like the UK. Their entertainment industry doesn't have all the money in the world like Hollywood to blow on, well, all the stupid crap that Hollywood blows money on. I beg to differ. I would say that, yes, it is about the art, but also it's about the merchandising to support the art. Get your your Tracy Island playset now. Oh no, Hobbit! Do you do you not remember Blue Peter when you when when? Here's um, one I made earlier. When but... Althea Turner showed us how to make how to make Tracy Island. It, this is just us two talking over the top of Nat's head now. Nat has no we, idea what we're on the, about. This wee Brit posting now. So yeah. the, there was this toy set which was the Tracy Island thing, which was available for forty pounds in nineteen nineties money. Which what I mean that that's close to what 120 if not more today. Yeah. And it was consistently sold out. And I remember one of the the, the sort of rich kids in my neighbourhood had one, and I was amazed at it. But then I thought to myself, I'd never be able to afford one of these. And then I saw them on on Blue Peter's like you can make your own Tracy Island if it's sold out. And here's how: first of all, you need some fairy washing up bottles. Ask mum if she could, you can keep the empties. And toilet rolls. Your toilet rolls, yep. It's amazing how many toys could be made out of like household scrap and some PPA you, glue. Have you ever had a program like like uh, Blue Peter in America, Nat, where you have like four four presenters, where it's like it's like a magazine show where they all do different bits and they show you how to make things and stuff like that. Uh, I guess. I mean, maybe not with four different hosts. Maybe someone in the listening audience is something comes immediately to mind for them. But we did have science shows like Mr. Wizard, where he demonstrated scientific principles using items that you could make at home. And then he had like kids. No, you this, know. Was, this was like how this was like presenters would go like rock climbing or something like that. And then they'd show you how to make like a Tracy Island or, or you know, or something like that. What's a Tracy uh, Island? Is that a. A swimsuit model? <laughs> Tracy Island from the Thunderbirds, the island that they all live on. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Okay, because yeah. isn't their last name Tracy? That's like the yes. the, the family name. Cool. 
Well, no, we we didn't we didn't have like you know fruitful educational material. Maybe some stuff on the the the, the publicly funded channel, but yeah, yeah, not not so much. But getting back to the show, the effects are really solid. They still hold up like really well. This is the actual realization of what Anderson wanted to do in Fireball XL5. Every moment of the first episode was impressive in some way to me. A lot of action going on and very complex action. Have you seen any of the uh, making of stuff on Thunderbirds? So basically, they had a company that would make the rockets for them. You know, the rockets that are firing all the time. So basically, they'd like yeah. these rockets and then somebody would be standing in the air and they'd have the vehicles were puppeteered as well. So you'd have someone above it holding like Thunderbird 2 and flowing it across the sky while these, right. while these rockets are flaming and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of craft in it. Yeah, it's incredible. And the story and pacing are great, too. Like they really feel, you know, on par with stuff that you would you would see today. The other thing about the Thunderbirds was they did the pilot episode. Then Lou Grade said, this is brilliant. Can you do an hour every week? So Stingray was a half an hour. So Thunderbirds then went to an hour. And and Jerry Anderson also had a very specific timings for how the episodes panned out. I can't remember all of it exactly, but the first 10 minutes, you'd spend it with the family that were going to be stuck in the disaster. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it was all specifically paced. Oh, wow, yeah. So that that, that first episode is only half an hour. So that, that that's amazing. That's amazing. That must have been so expensive to do an hour of that show because <laughs> it is yeah. really quite complex. If the other episodes are as, you know, if there is as much spectacle as there was in that first one, because it is, was, it is quite interesting. There's a lot of spectacle in every episode. And then, wow. and then there's also, like, towards the end, he said, they'd all have, always have the bit where they were doing the countdown. So he'd be like, you've just got a few, just got to hang on for a couple of minutes, just got to hang on for a minute, just got to hang on for a few seconds, all that kind of stuff, to build tension. Right. Yeah, very classic. But again, you know, the the optimism is super, super represented, even in this in this first episode, where... There's a commercial airliner that is sort of like a successor to the Concorde craft. Was the Concorde even around yet? Uh, 76? I think okay, it predated. So, I think yeah, the, it predates think it by quite a bit. Yeah, I think and, it was 76, yeah. Yeah, and, and so not only does this predict the Concorde, it goes well beyond it in that it goes Mach 6, which is... <laughs> which is pretty incredible and and also the in- interior of the craft is like a cocktail lounge where everyone has plenty of room to sit and i mean plenty of room it's like a luxurious living room with seat belts uh, so the idea that air travel would get better and not worse is is pretty awesome two years they made thunderbirds force between 1964 and 1966 Right. Which is amazing when you think about what a cultural touchstone is, isn't it? Right. It's sort of a similar thing with Star Trek, which I think only had three seasons when you'd think it had like eight seasons or something like that. Although Next Gen, uh, that series had a lot of seasons. Was that five or seven? It might have been seven, because I remember there being quite a few. But one of the Thunderbird planes can go over Mach 10. And that seems like insane, right? It's like, oh, they just chose a, a ridiculously high number because it's a sci-fi show. No, I really feel like they thought all of this stuff would would manifest in some way. And I think it does take place in like the, 
the 2020s uh, again or something like that. It struck me as though they really saw this happening. They saw things getting better and not worse. And and we've never actually hit Mach 10 in real life. We have come close with an unmanned uh, vessel, but we haven't even come remotely close with a piloted craft. And it's like, who cares? You know, it's a children's show. It's a sci-fi show. But again, this is, I, I think this was going through someone's head. Like the optimism in their mind was on, on display here. I feel we're, we're missing one of the key points here that Fireflash, the, the aircraft you're talking about, is not powered by conventional jet engines. It is a nuclear powered, an air-cooled <laughs> nuclear reactor. And because... <laughs> No, nuclear reactor. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no explanation as to how the nuclear reactor makes it go, but it goes fast and it's really spacious. Oh, and the creator of Fire Flash is he's called Brains. That that's his name. Yeah. He has a huge forehead. He was christened as Brains. <laughs> I did I did watch one where he pioneered the design for an airship which for some reason didn't have a balloon on it, so I don't know. <laughs> and, and he called himself Mr. X in that one <laughs> when he was proposing the idea because no, nobody wanted him to know, no, he didn't want anyone to know his name, which I think is brains quite possibly. <laughs> All of the designs are really cool. I looked at a later episode. I really liked the show. I wanted to see a little bit more of it, and I didn't actually watch it just sort of skimmed through and i saw just lots and lots of cool mechanical designs it looked very well realized they moved great etc so yeah just 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 really amazing work and i it, i think it could be considered the root for many many trillions of dollars worth of of media that we have today i think this was kind of the peak in optimism as well because when you go to the later ones it kind of I think it, I think they start getting more cynical after Thunderbirds, don't they? Yeah, that's a very good point. Let's actually talk about perhaps the darkest Jerry Anderson show, Captain Scarlet. The Mysterons, sworn enemies of Earth, possessing the ability to recreate an exact likeness of an object or person. But first, they must destroy. Leading the fight, one man fate has made indestructible. His name, Captain Scarlet. This is a, a huge technical boost with extremely sophisticated movement and effects. It's like, it almost feels like a, a live action show from the 70s at this point. I've got a point to make about this one. We were talking about the solenoid technology in the heads where they'd actually perfected it and miniaturized it a bit. That's why the Captain Scarlet heads are much smaller than the... They seem they're smaller in proportion than the Thunderbirds heads. Oh. This is the uh, show where they shift from caricatures to just straight up. I mean, they look like Ken dolls. They're very, very realistically proportioned. And that is, and that is why, because you had that leap forward in technology. I, I think that I'm not sure if I like it better. And you also have your first black character. Jer Jerry Anderson had tried to get black characters in before. But but Lou Grade had said no, that won't sell in the American market. <laughs> yeah, and and also this has the the one and only male black in in any of his shows. Yeah, uh, Captain, I think it's Captain Green, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah, but he doesn't really. He, he's still quite light skinned though, isn't he? 
everyone's least favourite captain, apart from <laughs> Captain Oka. What about Captain Magenta? <laughs> oh, I was thinking, if, was it Captain Brown? But you don't see much of Captain Brown. No, you don't, do you? It's, 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 yeah. kind of, it's, it's like a buddy show, isn't it, between uh, Captain Scarlet and Captain Blue? So so let's let's explain the story of this real quick. Captain Scarlet, oh man, it's actually really weird. It is a much darker show. It doesn't have any humor in it. The basic premise is that human beings intercept a radio transmission from Mars and they casually go over to check it out. What they find is some kind of Mars base with what appears to be uh, giant turrets aimed at the explorers. Now, the explorers came prepared, and when they see these turrets, which are actually cameras, they decide to completely nuke the entire base. Like, they destroy everything. I was going to say, it appears they sent uh, Jimbo and Ned from South Park. It's coming right for us! <laughs> yeah, yeah, without, without any hesitation at all, they nuke the base to hell. However, <laughs> occupying the base are kind of the technological, like, basically the super AI of an ancient race that had long ago left Mars, they activate some kind of technology which allows them to do a, a spatial temporal field around matter that allows it to assume a, a previous state. So what they do is they point it at their base. They put the base back together because I guess they go back to before it was nuked. And then they decide that we're a peaceful race, but since you did that, we're going to destroy all of you person by person. Very, very <laughs> slowly and painfully. Exactly. They point out, <laughs> we're going to slowly destroy all of you, perhaps over the course of 39 episodes. And But, but, but it doesn't stop there. The, the plot is very, very complex. The team that these space explorers come from spectrum, because everyone is named after a color. So you have these, quote, captains. And Captain Scarlet is murdered by the Mysterons, which is the alien AI hive mind. These Mysterons can doppelgang any object or person they want as long as they destroy it first, I guess. And so they doppelgang Captain Scarlet. And Captain Scarlet is killed by his buddy Captain Blue. But when Captain Scarlet's doppelganger dies... Captain Scarlet's personality and consciousness reassumes the body. Now, Captain Scarlet's himself again, but whenever he dies, he comes back to life thanks to this sort of temporal field effect that's been applied to his body. Sorry if that was... <laughs> try to stay with me here. But the end result is that Captain Scarlet will never die. And he takes advantage of this in various episodes by committing Sudoku in order to thwart the Mysteron. So that's the special gimmick here. There isn't many vehicles, to be honest. Most of it is human drama and humans fighting one another in sort of a secret agent fashion, except Captain Scarlet is able to kill himself and sacrifice himself to, you know, to save the day. Except for one of the best vehicles in all of the Jerry Anderson productions, being the, the flying aircraft carrier. I'm not, I'm not sure what the advantages of flying aircraft carrier is, but it looks cool. Huh. And I, I wonder if that also inspired the exact same vehicle in the Avengers. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't make that connection. I know that this was Hemingford's favorite show of the lot, but for me, 
I didn't like it. I really didn't like it. And 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 the reason is the pacing. Again, I I, I as I said earlier, the pace is what makes or breaks each of these shows. And the pace is so plotting in this that ultimately I had almost no interest in what was happening. Even though the plot is pretty sophisticated, the effects are very very good. I I was just so quiet and so slow and it just is not the right pacing for this medium you know this this medium has you don't have facial uh, expressions the intonation of movement just requires live action actors and even though this is like technically kind of maybe the maybe the height of this genre it ends up being perhaps the low point for me simply because what they're trying to do so deeply is emulate live action that they're actually hitting the ceiling of what they can do with it's this uh, genre. It's a shame. And I think one of the things mentioning about as well is that later on, because there is a, a CG, CGI version of Phantom Birds and Captain Scarlet, there's I, a hybrid. So it's Super Mario Nation with CG elements in it called Firestorm, which is based on the Jerry Anderson's ideas. And it, to me, it feels very much like um, Terror Hawks and Captain Scarlet. And the, instead of having the, the flappy paddles operate by solenoids for the lips, at this time they used uh, CGI void mouths, which I really dislike the effect. But it's interesting that they did it. And when I say it's a bit like UFO, UFO was, was it Space 1999? It's one or the other where it's, they're set on, no, one of them is the moon has had a nuclear explosion on it, which has sent the moon as off as a runaway planet. And they have these guns in it, which are, they might as well just be staple guns. They, they remind me of staple guns. And they got that in Firestorm as well, the guns which look like staple guns. Uh, UFOs where they run an extraterrestrial monitoring something from a basement, don't they? Oh, so maybe Space 1999 is the other one you're thinking of. Because Jerry Anson did some live action. Uh, yeah, he did, but he did both of those. It is trying to scrape the boundaries of what you can do with this genre. So it's too much like a live action show, except you can't do the things that real people can do to get across the kind of the quiet drama that they're going for. Captain Scarlet was my favorite when I was a kid. I, I preferred that to Thunderbirds. I think it's probably because I was an edgelord even then, I think. You probably enjoyed the adult vibe of it, which I totally get. I totally get. I mean, that's why as a kid, I kind of gravitated more towards anime because Western animation was very cutesy and kitty and, and talked down to kids, whereas like Japanese animation was more like this. It was more for all ages in a sense. At least I, I would say that the prime ages for this genre and things like most anime are like around like 20, like 20, 19 years old. I, I can absolutely get why someone would like this more. For me, visiting it in retrospect, I found that I was less less enthralled. I wanted to go back to Thunderbirds and 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 see a little bit more, a little bit more Zazz. I think the other thing you need to remember as well is that like how it's like everything's been ripped off of these shows. So you go back and watch them, and you kind of think they're an original, but they're not. They are the original, aren't they? That's the kind of weird thing about, it, isn't it? 
Yeah, and I absolutely appreciate that. You have to do that with any non-contemporary work. You need to put yourself in that time. And sometimes it's a timeless thing. It's good outside of its era. Sometimes you appreciate, appreciate it best when you think of it within that era. And I think that this is exemplified very well in our next show, Joe 90. which completely disregards any kind of child labor laws of the day. That was another kind of optimism in the, of the future. Even children will work. Well, I'll let Russian scientists babysit you, son. <laughs> Hemi, I, I was, uh, uh, I'm hoping you can kind of fill me in here, but my understanding of the premise behind the show is that there's this bloke, and he invents a machine called Big Rat, which allows yep. knowledge transference to someone inside it. And they decide as a test subject, it's like, I'm going to use my own son. Hey, son, how would you? Well, you're not going to get a choice. Go into the machine. I'm going to put knowledge in you now. All right. then. Well, the, well, the, conceit, the conceit of the show is like X needs to be done. So we need to steal X experts uh, knowledge. So then we can put it into Joe Nanti and send him along to do the job. <laughs> I suppose the device only works on someone with a high degree of neuroplasticity, which is what a I, child no, I, possesses. I don't, I don't think they went that far into it. It's just yeah, like, they didn't go that I, far, but I have. Here, here, I, don't, I don't have a monkey to do this on. I'll just do it on my son instead. I think. You see, like... that's the thing. Like They don't go into that. And it's like, why in God's name are you using a nine-year-old instead of an adult? And all I can think yeah. of, I mean, this makes perfect sense to me. Like Kids are sponges, right? Yes, listeners, we did say that, that a nine-year-old boy is sent out to do secret agent work. Right. Which... Joe is endowed with a special device, the Big Rat. Ridiculous name. But he's able to temporarily download the knowledge of anyone from genius scientists to ace fighter pilots. And therefore, he goes out on secret agent missions. Once they're able to have access to the person they need to download, they're able to transfer the knowledge to him. And then he goes out on a mission. That is the template of the show. It is a power fantasy for young boys. And you see this as the adults in the show treat Joe with this kind of like, God, like overwrought reverence. It's exactly the way that kids always wish they were treated. And I guess the way that liberals do treat them. The other thing they said about this is that there's a couple of things. One, it's got a very small cast. So basically you've got Joe, Joe's dad and the boss. You've got no particularly strong female characters because obviously before in Captain Scarlet you had the angels, didn't you? And then you had Marina before that. So you've always had like female characters in it. And also this one, a lot of people say that this is even more violent than Captain Scarlet, if you've watched enough episodes of it. Well, uh, first of all, can I say Nat's right about this being a power fantasy. I remember enjoying it very much as a boy growing up. And it is very much it's a boy's world. And calling anybody with national health glasses, Joe, not in <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's it. I, oh, I, really? I, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Then, 
that it, it's become a trope these days that those sorts of glasses with they are just Joe Ninety glasses or Michael Ken glasses if you're a yeah. So the remote device that allows Joe to hold on to his downloaded knowledge looks like a pair of thick rim hipster glasses. Yeah, that's... so that's what we're referencing. Back in the day, they were like national health glasses. So they were standard issue for people that didn't want to pay money for spectacles. Yeah, but this is the pilot episode where he's even the premise there is just saying imagine these are the sorts of things that he could do so in this episode he hasn't gone ahead and done it and i think that was kind of how they managed to couch it i started off watching the pilot like oh this is this is pretty grounded this was actually the first show i watched in everything we're talking about like huh this is way more grounded than i'm used to watching for children's entertainment like if i'm thinking of thundercats or Something like that, where it's very bombastic. This has a quiet, grounded vibe. It elicited the kind of thing I would expect in a Netflix show. And But the exceptions to the groundedness start to crop up as the show goes on, and in two major ways. So first, we have plot holes that are blatantly ignored, like more blatantly than any other show so far, such as when Joe disappears in a Soviet Russian compound and none of the Russians even care. We're talking about high profile Russian military. They don't care that there's currently a a missing nine year old British boy wandering around in one of their Air Force facilities. Also, with it with an inexplicable Cockney accent. <laughs> it's like, why is he got a Cockney accent? Does he have a Cockney he, he, accent? He's got a Cockney accent, but his father doesn't. He talks like a Cockney urchin, doesn't he? And it, but, but he lives in Cornwall, and his dad's quite well-spoken, so I don't know where he gets the Cockney accent from. Maybe That's it's pretty from funny. his mum, who's never depicted in the show. No, she's <laughs> never depicted. As far as we know, he's raised by a single father, which well, is... Well, I, 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 I assume his mum was the testament of the brain device, and she had an aneurysm or something. <laughs> it's like okay not doing that on adults anymore Yeesh. it definitely won't Dude. happen the second time go on joe go into it oh all right Dad. you all joe has the right neuroplasticity oh um, yeah yeah that's now the official canon as of this podcast but well, joe's mum was the test pilot for <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you mentioned hobbit at the end of the pilot it not only pulls what's essentially it was all a dream, but <laughs> it's also revealed that the show takes place in an alternate universe where the Cold War never happened. So that's weird. I, I, I feel like there must have been a like a politically because this was the time of like the emergence of political correctness. That's what Captain Scarlet was doing intentionally. And and so. I, I, I feel like there was some element of political correctness that motivated them to erase the Cold War, erase that element of it. Was it set in the future? Maybe, maybe, it is, it, maybe the Cold I War ended in the future. Uh, really? Uh, well, I get everything seems so contemporary to the time, though. Yeah. Like the Russians are flying in a MiG aircraft that that looks very much like a real life aircraft. The the space rockets don't look sci-fi either. Joe 90 is set in the near future. The time frame is most commonly stated to be 2012 and 2013. Okay. Oh, well, the official script writer's guide states the year is 1998. So this is oh, 30, 30 years, years in the future. Yeah. yeah. So the bit which I found interesting in this is that the, the fictional MiG, which Joe 90 
captures and steals and then takes back to England safely after killing a bunch of people that are after him. <laughs> was It's called the MiG-242. I'm thinking to myself, well, there is no MiG-242, but there was a Messerschmitt 242. Or is it 212? I'm pretty sure there's an ME-242. I have no idea. Is Messerschmitt a German aircraft? I believe so, yes. It During was World War II air... or what? Yeah, it was a World War II aircraft with jet engines. Oh, interesting. Okay, maybe that is a reference then. Or maybe not, and we're totally mistaken. I, I, this is a, another show where I kind of watched another episode and skimmed through it. And I, I actually watched more of that episode instead of purely skimming. It was really interesting where they needed to make some tough decisions in the episode I watched where they they actually needed to kill some of their own people because they needed to save the lives of some civilians. That, that's a pretty big thing to do in what's uh, ostensibly a children's show. That's pretty, ni- that's pretty nihilist for a kid's show, isn't it? And, and to be honest, I, I was actually more interested in seeing whether it goes more in the grounded direction or more in the super bonkers, like infiltrating Russian bases and no one cares. And it was the all, all a dream kind of thing. And I'm happy to say that it actually stays more grounded just from the second dip episode that I, I watched. So to the stuff you stuff so far, then did you did you enjoy it or will you be da- taking another dip into it? I, I feel like I, I will return to to some of this. I'll probably return to Joe 90. I'll probably return to thunderbirds and maybe even supercar just from a you know interest in how early it is and and how it seems to have influenced so much of the work that came after it as well as other people's work there is a there is a really funny stingray i watched it's called standby for action where where the where the um underwater people what they do is is it's just ridiculous. They make a Stingray film just so they can try and kill St- <laughs> They spend a couple of million making making a Stingray film so they can try and kill St- Troy Tempest. <laughs> sounds convoluted. <laughs> <laughs> just a bit. It's hilarious. Anything made before Thunderbirds, I'd say, you have to kind of make a little bit more allowance for the time. You know, a little bit more allowance for... I I have no idea what the production schedules were like or what the writing methodologies were like, but they clearly produced a different kind of narrative from what we're used to. However, I, I wouldn't say that it was all better because one show that I won't be returning to is the final one we'll be talking about, which is Terrahawks. Or as some might call it, The Other Legend of Zelda. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So in in a way, so I watched this right after Thunderbirds, and I saw this as kind of a spiritual successor to that. So instead of an air rescue unit, you have a space rescue unit or something. But they specifically fight these weird evil trolls who are also apparently robots. Oh, that explains having things like, what is it, granite gravy and other non-food items as food. The really important thing to know is that this isn't necessarily a Jerry Anderson production. Jim Henson 
from the Muppets. He was involved in this and he developed uh, what he called the super macronation technique, which combined super marionation with the hand puppetry that Henson's known for. So I guess he called that macronation because reasons, but it's uh, it's distinctly different. I think the good guys in Terrahawks use the super marionation technique and they're a bunch of like multi-culty types. Like there's literally, you know, it, it, we were getting into the 80s where the Captain Planet and Burger King Kids Club and all that, like we need to cherry pick a person from each kind of demographic and stick them all together into a team. That was starting to happen in the 80s. And you do see it here. There's even a black woman with bright pink hair. I don't know what they were going for there, but it was actually very prescient, wasn't it? It was very prescient uh, design. Yeah. But but a few things that I did notice that were sort of out of time was that the villain calls her son retarded. This is a female villain named Zelda. And again, they're just these weird troll looking things. And, and they are puppets. They look so bizarre. They don't look like robots really at all, except for like they're these long metal fingernails. They do look like trolls with gray wrinkly skin. They just look bizarre. They look like they were puppets that were made out of random stuff they found in a prop closet. But that's why I was thinking, are these just recycled grotesque creatures from Fable XL5 and Stingray? Because they got the same sorts of features and bulging eyes. and they. They're, they're well, that can't be. The, I mean, I doubt it because this was made like 20 years later. They yeah, might have found yes. something, but these are also not marionettes for the most part. Those, those villains are a different kind of uh, puppet. Also, the villains give birth to a trans child which is, uh, they call it a, an oiberl or something like that. That's the gender that they assign to the uh, the child. So somehow the troll android things, they give birth to a child in a metal vat. So I guess you could say it's like transhumanism in a sense. So they're transhuman, transgendered trolls. Hmm. That is, there's, there's some weird, there's some weird prescience going on here. It was it was ahead of its time in many ways, but the problem is is the execution in this wasn't as good as some of the other shows. It's I feel it's very much of its time. It was for whatever reason I think people were stopped being so interested in the puppet work, which and and by so the eighties there was a Sesame Street and the Muppet uh, TV show. There was like a lamb chop. There was some puppet work in uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So it didn't really go away entirely. But for that to be the, the main show that kids would watch, I certainly didn't don't recollect any well, of that coming back in the 80s. It had some quite interesting characters in it, though, didn't it? I, I quite like the, what, the, the ball things. I can't remember what they're called. The... Oh, yeah, so yeah. They have these uh, little robots that are affixed to their, their super tank that... Yeah. You know what they remind me of? They remind me of the old guys in the balcony from the Muppets. They're just, <laughs> they sort of have was, banter uh, with one another. They deliver a zippy line and then, and then we're off. Like we're, 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 we're looking at yeah, something like else. Did you, did you see the one where they kept trying to do this? Cause you know, the black woman in it is a singer. Did you, did you catch that line? That, did you no. Catch that bit? Oh, so basically Terrorhawks is coming back and it's going to be centered around the black girl. What? They're making a new they're making a new Terrahawks and it's gonna be about the black girl. Yeah, the, the black pink girl hair. with pink hair, yeah. yeah. It's gonna be about oh. her. 
the the uh, one I watched, the one I watched, the gag, the gag was that that uh, there was like a music producer trying to get hold of her, and and the Zoids were they, were they called Zoids or something? Um, they kept answering the phone like different ones did, and they all had different voices, and they're fobbing this bloke off. It was actually quite funny. Hmm. Yeah, I think they're called Zeroids, but Zeroids whatever. Is what called, yeah. <laughs> Generically oh, sci-fi name. I was yeah. going to say I was listening to Zeroid Number Zero. Is that the guy from Rumpold in the Bailey? No, it, yeah, no, it's Windsor Davis from uh, It Ain't Our Fuckman. Oh right, because he's got a very plummy voice, and I just thought I'm sure I've seen him in one of those boring crime procedural dramas with detectives investigating murders in in some quaint English village. Yeah, I think it's kind of a bit. It's a bit all over the place, isn't it, Terror Hawks? And it, it's not. It's not as finely tuned as all, as all the others, is it? It's sloppy. Super Marionation had two things going for it. One, it had a very consistent art style, whereas this is trying to combine two different kinds of art styles. Well, this and is Super two, Macronation, isn't it? Exactly like, right. Yeah. And and two, like Jerry Anderson is not totally at the helm here. This is more so Jim Henson. I should think they're probably more than likely just they're probably just using the Jerry the Jerry Anderson name to get some bums Possibly. on. Possibly, I'm not totally sure, but it was clear that his his influence was was a, far more diminished. Yeah, so if people want to watch this stuff, and I do recommend it, you can probably avoid Terrahawks. I feel like taking anything else out, I feel like you guys would disagree with, but we can probably all agree that like Terrahawks is not really that worthwhile and the rest of this stuff i mean for the weebs out there starfleet's quite a good one which starfleet somehow led to terror hawks i can't remember how it was like i think it was like the the british dub of it but starfleet or what did you say it was called Uh, yeah starfleet was a japanese a super marionette super mario nation show that was dubbed for the british market and then some people who worked on that dub went on to make a show inspired by it and that became Terra Hawks. That's quite watchable. That that's that's more that's more in the vein of kind of it's like somewhere between Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet. Oh okay. Yeah, so that would bring you up to like six, seven shows. Each of them have uh, about twenty two minutes of content i would say if you watch those at like like 1.5 speed and all these you know online players have a speed function now you could get through in in the length of a movie and you could absolutely enjoy it so i highly recommend just just check it out i mean you don't have anything to lose right no one's no one's gonna judge you i won't judge you at least so you've got that going for you I thought the se- the Secret Service was hilarious because of uh, Stanley Unwin. Uh, do, do, are you aware of Stanley Unwin, Hobbit? Uh, I am now that I've seen Secret Service. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. And, th- and that's more of a latter-day Jerry Anderson show, right? Yeah. No, Secret Service was immediately after Joe 90. And then, sorry, yeah, immediately after Joe 90. I think. That would explain a lot because it's got a lot of very similar themes to Joe 90. Yeah, the ba- the basic premise of Secret Service is, is that you have is, is there's a secret organization called Bishop, which I can't remember what it stands for, but basically the 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 main spy in it and that is a priest, and uh, and his sidekick is his gardener who who he can shrink to one third. <laughs> 
size <laughs> who can sit in a suitcase. He has a little suitcase with like a seat and everything in it. And a, and a periscope and stuff like that. Again, that's looking at the craft of, of the marionette. Because the marionettes are one third the size of, of a person. I yeah. mean, I don't know what kind of person is it. A, is a manlet? Is it not? I mean, so what they did. Uh, so what they did with Secret Service was they was they hybridized like acting and the puppetry. So you have a lot more when he's driving the car. A lot of the like panned back shots are actually Stanley Stanley Unwin driving the car and not his puppet. Yeah, but quite they, a lot. Quite a yeah, lot of yeah. live action shots. I mean, yeah. I only watched it for like uh, four minutes. And it was like every other shot was a live action shot. So that's interesting. And it also, when you take a step back and look at this, you see kind of the overarching shift from the supercar era, which involves some kind of super team driving vehicles. And then when we get past Thunderbirds and hit Captain Scarlet, now everything's about secret agents, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, this this was like peak peak cold war hours as well wasn't it like captain scarlet to secret service yeah so i think maybe that reflected a, a a certain shift perhaps influence from james bond or or something like that but it is interesting that we go from vehicle driving teams to a smaller group more focused on on, on secret agent stuff and sort of like captain scarlet somewhat combines the two Maybe that's why, like, Joe 90 onwards weren't quite so uh, popular because the merchandising was was less and less. Like, I think with Joe 90, I think it's the flying car and the and Joe 90's dad's boss's car are the only, t- are the only two bits of merchandise. And, and Joe 90's car is very similar in design to supercar, so maybe that's an intentional yeah. reference. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing that you can say with all these shows is when it, it comes to merchandising, there's plenty of opportunities for toys with all sort of interesting parts. And uh, going back to Thunderbirds, uh, I think Thunderbird 2 probably had to be one of the best toys. Because I think that was everybody's favourite, wasn't it? Because you had Thunderbird 2 and then you had like, is it 4 and 5 were... Oh, well, 5 was think. the space station. 5 was the space station, so... Uh, Thunderbird what? 4 was the submarine which we're going to uh, pod number 4 which we're going to yeah. Thunderbird 2 That's I don't it, remember yeah. what the other 6 pods had inside them but they'll kind of just plot devices really. yeah <laughs> oh interesting thing about the design of Thunderbird 2 was they originally had it with the wings the right, the right way around but they didn't think it looked like quirky and sci-fi enough so they just twisted the rings around the wings around I always thought that looked really cool I always, I always yeah. liked the just. I mean, that's the thing. There was just the design of these things are great. And, oh, you probably saw the special effects documentary where they had a fan blowing near the Thunderbird 2 model so that as it came to land, lots of dust would come up. <laughs> but that's it. They thought about they thought about the whole thing, didn't they? And it was, it was just really, really interesting, wasn't it? Mm. Well, boys, thank you for introducing me to this genre. But now my brain is one-third the size... <laughs> of a normal person's <laughs> i want to thank hobbit for joining us yet again it's always a pleasure thank you for listening to me and hobbit as always same to you and dope bros are go until next time listeners day dope <laughs>